Hello, everyone. I'm Brandon Marcello, uh, sitting digitally across from Michael Nislik, who apparently has uh, the Black Plague at his home. Again. No. Some sort of rhinovirus that's very contagious, apparently. Rhinovirus? Yeah, it's something the kids got, so... What uh, is that? I don't know. It, it's gross. Uh, I copped up something from the upside down world today. Oh, uh, well, just keep the demagogues out. Yeah, it's not great. Rhinovirus. That's a, that literally the does human sound like rhinovirus, uh, and it is the most common viral infectious agent in humans. It's, so, yeah, it's good. That sounds like good something stuff. from the 1600s. Yeah. Yeah, we're all, we're all in pretty bad shape. So, okay. Well, it tough. must it must be Iron Bowl week because everybody gets sick on Iron Bowl week. Yeah, um, and it can live up to three hours outside of the human host. That's sort of terrifying. It makes me never want to leave the house. What the heck? Uh, so basically, if you see me spray uh, <laughs> antibacterial stuff. Oh my god. Uh, anyway. Yeah. It's the happier things. I'm not sitting next to you at the press conference, Tuesday. Uh, I'll, sit, I'll sit like six rows back so I'm away from everybody. Good gosh. It lives outside the bot. Anyway, okay. <laughs> All right. This is the Auburn Undercover Podcast presented by WeHaveDonuts.com, D-O-U-G-H, Nuts.com. Gourmet Donuts based in Birmingham. It's good to have spend your money inside the state. Uh, you can get... Uh, those delivered to coffee shops around Birmingham and also to Prevail Union Coffee Shops in Montgomery and here in Auburn. Check them out at wehavedonuts.com for much more information. They even have donut walls for your special corporate events. Um, we haven't had a donut wall yet. Um, so uh, this is Iron Bowl week and pretty big, I would say. Um, SEC championship game. On the line between Alabama and Auburn, only the second time in history that that's the case. Well, at least, you know, since 92, since the conference expanded, but still huge. And it's the second time in four years uh, Auburn is in this position, which is, and Alabama is in this position, which is incredible. It's obviously the game of the year in the SEC, game of the week uh, in the country, uh, I would think, even during this rivalry week, because so much is at stake. And, uh, Auburn enters as about a four, four and a half point underdog, kind of as expected. But, uh, you know, it's at Jordan Hare Stadium, so you never know, as we all know, uh, back in 2013 when uh, Alabama entered, um, I think, as like a seven point favorite in that game. But anyway, uh, all that aside, Michael, these teams both are dealing with some uh, injuries on defense. It's. Uh, quite incredible we'll, we'll start with the auburn side i mean auburn had six defensive players leave the ulm game saturday with some sort of ailment and not not exactly what auburn wanted to but that was the like one thing they wanted to avoid in that game yeah i mean it was just like almost seemed like every other play someone was limping off the field i just kept going oh this is the worst thing possible now three or four of them returned to the field but for example jeff holland who's the best defender on the field i don't think anybody would argue with that he looked a little slow when he got back. Yeah, yeah, he was he was chasing on that quarterback on that one play, and I think two weeks ago he would have had him no problem, or a week ago, and then yeah. couldn't get near him. I think the two biggest ones, for uh, seriousness wise, Trey Williams couldn't lift up his head and shoulder, uh, and he's still been battling that throughout the year. I think he's certainly one guy that I would you would probably think is going to be questionable just because he hasn't really been able to kick that injury all season. And then Jeremiah Dinson, uh, he got hit in the head. Yeah. And so if he, you know, because there was no other contact on that play to him other than the knee to the head. And so if he has to enter a concussion protocol, which Gus hasn't talked about, he has he didn't talk about any specifics of any of the injuries. Um, you think that would put his game in jeopardy. But the other guys came back, uh, you know, maybe they're a little less than 100 percent, but I wouldn't think they're serious. But those two stand out. And especially since you asked a lot of the coaches last week about Jeremiah and he would have been healthy for the first time in a, in a couple of weeks and was really playing well. Yeah, they. I mean, Kevin Steele's making no bones about pretty much just saying he was the most important player in the secondary for them because he was help helps them identify routes, and he's such a good player anyway. And if they lose him, that's a huge loss, I think, um, bigger than Trey Williams because Auburn's proven they've been fine without Trey Williams, the linebacker. Yeah, Sean point. and Daryl are really, really good, and yeah. they've kind of there's been no sort of step down when they've had that kind of shoulder load. So 
But yeah, Jeremiah, because I mean, I don't know what the other, uh, you know, when he fell down and didn't move, I don't know what the, I mean, maybe a stinger, but hard to see what else that right. would be for Jeremiah. Um, that yeah. would be tough. Yeah, and especially if it is the head, as it seems it is, it's concussion. I mean, depending on how you're hit, you might know almost immediately, whoa, I feel a little dizzy and woozy. I better not move. Yeah. Um. So that may have been the situation. That, that's just us guessing. But it certainly looks like it, it was something that would involve his head, which would obviously involve them having to uh, do some concussion protocol and test. And, uh, you know, it's kind of difficult to come back. In, in week. one week, yeah, because I mean now that's so serious and it's such a and it, they have you know steps and things that he has to reach uh, yeah. and there's not a lot of time so um, it just puts it's a tough spot I mean especially since he's a guy that you know you f- is a real feel good story having come back from such major injuries a couple yeah. of years ago um, you hate to see him going through stuff again because man has he been through <laughs> that one hit it just broke everything and he just kind of put his head down and rehabbed for almost two years and and came back so. You hate to see that. You wish you could be on the field for the Iron Bowl, which is kind of what these kids look forward to, what, 365 days a year? Yeah, I would say so, uh, except for the leap years. So, yes. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting what uh, Auburn does defensively and who's healthy, who's not, and who's even slowed if they go out there. Like, like I said with right. Jeff Holland, if he plays, is he 100%? I don't think we'll get much of uh, in the way of a actual injury report. Injury this report this week, which you know we don't really ever get anything that's really clear cut unless someone's just completely out, like a Cameron Petway. But even with Cameron Petway, I mean, Gus Malzahn even said last week on his radio show he's probably out, which means he will be out unless he's playing some gamesmanship there. But Gus rarely does that when he just mentions that someone might be out. Um, and at this point, I don't think you would want to mess with the running back rotation for whatever it is. And uh, even though it's not really a rotation, I don't think you'd want to mess with that because it seems to be working right now with on Johnson. Well, and yeah, the good news for Auburn is that they haven't had their quarterback and running back healthy in this game in three years or whatever it is. Right. And, uh, now they are. So, I mean, even though they got some bad injury news or had some injuries on Saturday, I mean, it sounded like every fan, every time on Johnson touched the ball, was holding their breath and screaming at, or screaming at the TV and no in between. Um, they were very worried about his 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 health, but I think it's fair because I think your iron bowl probably rides on his shoulders a little bit. Yeah. Um, or a hot bit. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. And But as you mentioned, you know, <clears throat> save for these defensive injuries, which just popped up, but it seems like most of them will be available. <clears throat> this is the healthiest sovereign will be going into an Iron Bowl in several years since that 2014 game, really, mm-hmm. which is which is huge for Auburn, especially, as you said, the quarterback and uh, running back positions. Because last year, as we saw, that was just an absolute mess um, with Cameron Petway injured and still playing and then obviously having to put Jeremy Johnson back out there with Sean White injured. Now, on the Alabama side, they're dealing with a lot of injuries, too, on defense, and that's really kind of – been the storyline for them the last two weeks you know they had to come back and score in the final minute against Mississippi State to break a tie and win it and Mississippi State had uh, some success running right through the middle of that gut of that Alabama defense and that's where they're dealing with a lot of injuries Mike with especially the linebacker spot yeah Sean Dion Hamilton uh out for the season with torn ACL Mac Wilson looks like he's out for the season uh with a he was carted off the field uh, foot injury, it sounds like. And then they had lost in week one, Christian Miller and Tara Lewis, two linebackers. Uh, and they've got they've got a bunch of other injuries, too. They're starting left guard, Ross. And I wouldn't even want to attempt. Do you know how to say his last name? Pierre Shabaker or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I'm not. There's no way I can do uh, Left guard, he has an ankle injury. He was out last week. Um, Fitzpatrick sounds like he's going to play, but he's been dealing with a hamstring injury, and we saw what that did to on Johnson earlier this season. Rashawn Evans has battled injuries throughout the season, but he's going to probably, you know, he'll be in the lineup. But he had a groin injury, a stinger this season. So yeah. uh, their linebacker corps are dangerously thin. Um, that's probably good news for Auburn since they like tacking the middle of the defense. Yeah, and that, that's actually the strength of the Auburn offense is that offensive line and running between the tackles. Um, they haven't been very successful actually running outside the tackles unless it's uh, Eli Stove on a sweep of some sort, you know. But the patience – and the quick cutting uh, jump cuts and everything of on Johnson have really made them really uh, dangerous in the middle of defenses. And uh, I think that this favors Auburn a little bit going against that 
what what is still a great Alabama defensive line, but the question is, is the linebackers filling gaps there with all these injuries? And it's still not easy to run. You mentioned that Mississippi no. State game because, I mean, they had uh, Mississippi State ran uh, most uh, any team opponent for Alabama 172 yards, but there's a qualification there. It was on 49 attempts, yeah. so it was only 3.5 yards per carry. So it was still fighting and scratching for everything they got. This team's allowed only 100 yards on the, on the ground four times this season, Incredible. have allowed less than 50 three times. Incredible. Uh, and that was against all top Power 5 schools. Florida State top Power 5 schools, but Power 5 schools, Florida State, Vanderbilt, and Arkansas. So, um, yeah, 2.6 yards per carry they're giving up on the ground, only six rushing touchdowns. Pretty impressive resume. Uh, and, you know, any weakness, you kind of Auburn's going to kind of try to uh, exploit. And so I think certainly that linebacker thing maybe opens up uh, a little window there. Otherwise, this team has uh, shut everything down on the ground this season. Yeah, I, I personally think Auburn's got to rush for 200 yards to win this game. And I think they're in, it's entirely possible they do it. I think they've, they've become the team that cracks that barrier against this Alabama defense. And I say that just because Auburn's offensive line is just playing so well right now. Uh, well, they haven't done that since that, that 13 game. Uh, right. They haven't had more than 100 yards on the ground in the last two two years, and that's not a winning formula at all for Auburn. No. Uh, 66 yards last year, and like you mentioned, that was a rough day for the uh, the running backs. Um, yeah. The key the key every year in Gus Malzahn's offense since the Iron Bowl is, is running the ball. Uh, if they run the ball effectively, they've got a really good shot. And uh, vice versa. I mean, that's what it all comes down to in the SEC anyway sometimes. But I think for Auburn, they've got to find a way to limit Jalen Hurts uh, from scrambling and also, of course, throwing the football. But if they can limit Jalen Hurts from scrambling, that's going to put a lot of pressure on those tremendous running backs for Alabama. And if they can do that, Auburn can probably slow them down and stop them too. Um so if Auburn rushes for 200 plus and Alabama stays under 200 plus, Auburn's got a really good shot. But uh, and I think it's very possible that happens just because of the matchups and uh, Auburn's defense, which you know I, it's going to be hard to replicate what they did against Georgia, holding Sonny Michelle, Nick Chubb to 46 yards. But it proves, and they've proven all year, Auburn has on defense that they could stop anybody. Um, yeah, and so. Uh, playing at home, you know they're going to be amped up with that crowd behind them. It's going to be uh, going to be a monumental challenge, but one that they've proven that they can definitely uh, uh, match and even uh, surpass. Because no one was expecting that against Georgia, and uh, I think you would say the same thing about Alabama. But at this point, you give more credence to the idea that Auburn could could stop Alabama. Well, the one difference I think for Georgia is that Jake Fromm was kind of stuck in the mud. You know, he's not going anywhere in that pocket, really. Right. And Jalen Hurts, um, you know, things break down. You know, that's kind of when he's at his best, just getting out of the pocket and going. You know, he can carry it himself. He doesn't have to worry about looking for anybody else. So that's kind of the X factor almost. And you know, Auburn has it hasn't had a game where the like a true dual threat's kind of taken over. Nick Fitzgerald, they had to throw the ball. Um, you know, Clemson uh, really kind of got there in the air, you know, a couple carries for that quarterback, but they haven't had a game where the, uh, the quarterback has looked to make a difference on the ground. No. Um, and and it'll be interesting to see what Alabama tries to do. Yeah. And I thought, you know, against ULM that, uh, that would be a smaller test for Auburn's defense just because their, their, uh, quarterback was a dual threat guy and Auburn did a good job against him too. And obviously, it's a lesser quality opponent than the the opponents you just mentioned. But Auburn has proven this year that they they've done a pretty good job defending dual threat quarterbacks. Whereas in the past, even last season, that's kind of been their Achilles' heel. But they've done a yeah. much better job this season. I mean, the defense this is the best defense Auburn's had in more than a decade, and I don't think there's any questioning that. And uh, I mean, listen, Auburn's got the defense they need to play championship football. They've got the offense they need to play championship football, and they're healthy. So. You know, I, I saw, uh, you know, Paul Feinbaum's producer, John Hayes, he was tweeting earlier today on Monday. Um, he believes the wrong team's favored in the Iron Bowl. And he might be right. It's at home. And Auburn's playing probably better than any team in the SEC right now overall, except for maybe Alabama. But even then, it's evenly matched in the games in Auburn. So it's going to be a heck of a week. You know, I saw another thing where, 
There's been eight top ten matchups um, in the history of the Iron Bowl, and six of them were classics, like down to the wire, just amazing games. Well, we haven't seen that yet, so you hope it's going to be like that. But, man, every game we've kind of gone into think it's going to be a good game has been ugly or a blowout. So interested to see. We'll see. I'm sure Auburn fans would take for another forgettable – not forgettable, but another blowout. blowout. Yeah, no, absolutely. I tell you – I don't think anybody – Well, all right. Hypothetically – obviously, this is hypothetically. What is the talk around the country if Auburn, like, beats – Alabama by double digits somehow like does something that we did not expect against Georgia I mean they've been scoring 40 plus points in every SEC game other than the LSU game on the road what what if they do beat Alabama by double digits like what's the talk around the country I think you talk that they're number you know worthy of a number one ranking even though they have two two losses I mean it's how you're playing now I think that would be the discussion uh Clemson might have an issue if they beat Miami but uh I certainly think that that would be the focus that Auburn's, you know, barring some major stumble in the SEC championship, they could be, they could go into the uh, playoff rankings with a number one, number two ranking. That'd be interesting. Okay. Um, uh, speaking of the Iron Bowl, we uh, put together a long piece, a 20 minute read uh, on an oral history of the kick six. Um, I know some folks have done some versions of it in the past. Uh, I remember seeing one that was just solely the CBS broadcast team, which I found strange. So, well, it was for a site called Possible Announcement. Well, I, I know that. I know that. It was for a you know a site that focuses on broadcasting. But So it wasn't like a, a random site just, just focusing on Yeah, I, I, I just thought it was strange. Anyway, yeah. um, but um, pretty comprehensive. We, we didn't get a hold of everybody we wanted to. Um, and some people just didn't return calls, but I, I think the, uh, of course the, the, the golden, uh, goose, so to speak is, uh, Chris Davis and Chris Davis, the kick six heroes, everybody knows he's been unwilling to really kind of talk about this game and that kick six at length since it happened. Cause he's been so concentrated on his NFL career and he felt like he didn't want to be defined by that game, but he, uh, chatted with us for about. 20 minutes, uh, even sent a photo for us to use in the uh, oral history. He was very open about stuff, was talking about, you know, the play, obviously, but also how... We should, we should give a shout-out. Uh, Ryan Smith did encourage him yes. to talk, and so we should thank him. Uh, I talked to him at length and credit him for helping. Uh, it looked like he was going to talk, but Ryan Smith may have pushed him over the edge, so yeah, uh, they're very good. They're very, very close uh, still to this day. They're roommates, uh, so... Thank you for, for Ryan Smith yeah. pitching in uh, for the Auburn undercover team. Uh, maybe he should get a credit for helping compile. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Um, Ryan Smith, Ladarius Owens, and uh, Chris Davis, all close friends. I think it also helped that uh, apparently the three of them were actually in a group text message right when we were calling them talking about the kick six Yeah, <laughs> and the Iron Bowl. Uh, I texted Chris not expecting to even get a – text back because i have tried for several years and he wouldn't respond but he responded pretty quickly and he goes i'll talk if these guys talk and i was like okay well i'll, I'll get a hold of them and as you said you talked to ryan smith and smith uh, convinced him and that next morning i got a call from chris davis and we talked uh, at length and i always loved talking to chris davis when he was at auburn even obviously before the kick six because he was so open and pretty honest um, well you know that's the real shame of and that's why we, when we hear, I think fans hear us grumble about kind of media access or not getting to talk to players. I had great conversations with Chris Frost, uh, Ryan Smith, um, all, all four. I've talked to four players. And all four uh, just had great memories and great sort of perspective. And it's just a shame you can't do that with any current players. But that's when we talk about grumble about things like Chris Davis is a personality and fantastic. Uh, and so it's just disappointing we don't get to talk at length with kids that, the, you know, just kind of perspective for some people that when we do say those things, it's just because we want to tell their stories. And this was an opportunity to really go deep on a topic. And all these guys gave great stuff. I thought, yeah. And, 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 you know, the kids and the people involved, they, they, they become more open as they get further away from their college careers, of course. And they start realizing how big of a situation something was. They're more willing to want to talk about it. Um, obviously, you know, it's always great, you know, five, six, seven years later, you're talking about a favorite memory of yours and it becomes a little bit clearer 
in a way through your mind because you've thought about it so much and talked to your teammates uh, over the years about it. But Chris Davis was phenomenal. I hadn't talked to him since the 2014 NFL Combine. And uh, to be honest, I thought that was going to be the last time I talked to him because a little inside baseball story. Uh, I was there in Indianapolis, and so was uh, James Krapia for uh, AL.com, or I think it was Montgomery Paper at the time. And I was with AL.com at the time, I think. Yeah, I was, AL.com. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, Chris Davis came in to talk, and at these combines, you have to understand, there's hundreds of reporters there, uh, mostly from NFL teams, obviously. So everybody's talking to him, trying to figure out who he's, what teams he's talked to and how he's performing and all this stuff. And everybody was asking about the kick six and course and all that. And then this columnist um, randomly just came up and started asking him, because at the, at, the, at the time, one of the stories going on in the NFL was that you could be penalized if you said an inflammatory uh, word or used inflammatory language on the field. And this reporter kept asking him if he had ever used uh, the N-word on the field. And he kept pushing him on it. And Chris like was saying, I just don't want to answer that. And the guy was like, so you have used it. And Chris was just shaking his head like, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not going to answer that. And the guy couldn't take no for an answer, and he even followed him out and was all like, hey, you know, uh, I'm friends with so-and-so. You know, I figured, you know, we'd be able to, you know, do this, and, you know, I'll talk to you about it. You know, I respect you and all this. And I remember Chris Davis kind of walked walked out of that interview, and uh, James and I followed him outside, and we were like, dude, we're sorry you had to go through that. You shouldn't have to deal with that, especially after you said you don't talk about it. And Chris was like, yeah, it's all right. And he was just shaking his head. And and then he had to go do some more testing. And I remember turning to James going, I guarantee you that's probably the last time we talked to him because of what just happened. Yeah, that's off topic. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just came out of nowhere. I mean, it was a great interview. Chris was doing what he does best, and that's just talk and being open about everything. And then this reporter, he's a columnist for a national publication, came in and said that and was trying to put him in a bad situation and saying, well, yeah, so you have said it, huh? Just because you wouldn't answer the question. It was, it was totally unfair the way that guy handled it. And uh, James and I, in a way, like apologized to him for that reporter doing that, just going, man, we don't know what that happened. We hope, you know, hope that didn't make you shy away from everybody. But that coupled with him not want to talk about the kick six because he was trying to be a cornerback in the NFL. Um, he kind of, you know, he stepped out of, the, out of the light for a while. Um, didn't want to talk about it, even to local reporters about the kick six. But uh, he's uh, he's more than open now. And in fact, uh, Chris will be here for the Iron Bowl this week. And uh, we'll, they're trying to talk him into being the honorary Mike man. Um, before the game. Now, Nick Fairley was the honorary mic man for the Georgia game uh, two weeks ago, and the crowd loved that. But, you know, Chris is like, I don't know. I, you know, I'm kind of – I don't like being the center of attention. I don't know if I want to do that. And I said, dude, you need to do it because if you do it, that crowd is going to go ape. I mean, they are going to go nuts. Um, and uh, he said he might do it. But either way, he's going to be in town. Apparently he's going to sign autographs and do all kinds of stuff. And uh, so that's good because he was here for the Iron Bowl, I think, two years ago, but he was like very low profile. He didn't want to do anything. He didn't want to sign autographs. He did not want to talk on the record about the kick six or anything like that. But, you know, I can see why, though, he wouldn't want to take attention from this year's team. Let sure. That be their thing. Uh, and he sounds like the guy you know, Ryan Smith just says that's his personality. Um, so uh, I wouldn't take it as fans. uh is an insult or anything. It's more just no. how he's just kind of shy away from it. Um, let's the play and the play does speak for itself. You know, it does <laughs> pretty impressive, but man, if they do introduce him to the crowd, uh, he will get quite <laughs> the, uh, uh, he'll get the uh, biggest ovation of the, uh, the afternoon. Oh, I'm sure yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it was great doing that piece and, uh, getting to talk to Chris Davis again was a treat. I mean, that, that, and listen guys, I mean, 20, 30 years from now to the end of time when football's still around, they'll be replaying that play. I mean, it's there's no doubt about it. And as the years melt by, it'll become bigger and bigger. It really will. Just like the Cal-Stanford band on the field play and all that. And uh, 
But it was great talking to the players and some of the coaches. Talked to Ellis Johnson. Talked to Charlie Harvison. You know, a lot of people don't realize, but the reason why they had a player in the back, uh, the end zone to catch the football anyway on the missed field goal was because of Ellis Johnson. Um, well, and a couple of things that stood out to me uh, from all the interviews. Chris Davis saying he, looking back and kind of watching the replay, he would have loved to have hand, handed the ball off to Ladarius. Yeah, that was score. great. That's like, first of all, insane. Cause you could you imagine fans just like holding their breath <laughs> as that they tried to exchange the ball and like, what are you doing? Um, people would have lost their minds that there was concern. Robinson Therese uh, was so close to Davis that there were multiple people, Ellis Johnson included that thought they were going to trip each other. Um, which I thought was funny because that was the only way he was going to get stopped. Yeah. Um, and then Ellis Johnson said, because Ryan Smith was back there originally, uh, and they, I guess they, <laughs> it was some pretty good stories about how they always teased Ryan about falling down anytime he got an interception or covered a fumble. Uh, and then Ellis Johnson just putting the exclamation point, uh, there's no way in hell Ryan would have scored. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Ryan Smith, th- you know, th- he doesn't. He doesn't think it like that. You know, he's glad Chris Davis got put in there, but he had the idea he was going to do that. He was going to return it before that, you know, before the timeout. He kind of thought he was going to sneak back there, but uh, I think he thought a little higher of himself than that. But yeah. very funny. Yeah, that was. that's funny. Because Ryan caught a uh, blocked field goal earlier in the game right. and uh, tried to run, and his feet slipped out underneath them. And, and I guess this... it was like a common thing. It wasn't yeah. just the first time. So yeah, it, and I'll tell you what, it did happen a lot when he had picks. He would it would just look like he was w- w- running on ice. He just he just gets so excited, I guess. I don't know, but uh, yeah. I mean, Ellis Johnson, you know, of course, not working for Auburn anymore, so he's much more open. He was just like, "There's no way in hell he would have returned it." But the stories about that, but also after the game, how like you know the coaches are coming down the press box and walking through the stadium, and there was no one in the stands. Yeah. I mean, that's that's, that's eerie. Like a zombie it's really movie. cool. Everybody yeah. had disappeared. They're like, "Wait, I thought we played a game." And then, like an hour after the game, they're finally leaving the stadium, but traffic is stopped outside. That's something I didn't know because I was still in the stadium. And you didn't hear stories about it, but traffic was stopped outside because every people were getting out of their cars, just going nuts. They were stuck in traffic waiting to get out, and so some people just got out to celebrate. And so the Auburn coaches had to get golf carts and use golf carts to drive all the way down to the Auburn University Hotel because they had recruits on campus, including, by the way, Rashawn Evans, who now plays for Alabama, and they had to go meet them and, and keep a schedule, so they had to go get golf carts and drive to the the hotel, and they, and uh, Charlie Harbison said he's never seen anything like it. He said it was like a movie, and I guess, like you said, it was like a zombie movie because it was like the end of the world. Everybody just had abandoned their cars in the middle of the yeah. street. Um, yeah, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a crazy situation, and... I, I just that and the football laying there on the field and no one touching it and a ball boy gets it and keeps it and he thinks about keeping it and now we still don't know where it's at last time I knew it was in Jay Jacobs office and Jay Jacobs did not respond uh, to requests for this uh, oral history either which was interesting um, but the last I heard it was still in his office like in a cabinet um, what if it had been a like more scrupulous sort of person that recovered the football and it was just <laughs> hidden from time? I mean, you think about it. Like, well, Chris uh, Frost said his helmet just got stolen twice. Yeah, <laughs> twice that season. So, uh, and he said that apparently the equipment people know that that's common. That anytime after games, like a big game, people yeah. will steal helmets. Um, so, I mean, you think about that football. They're lucky that they even got it. To be yeah, honest. No. Well, the uh, next day they they were looking for it, and it was even being talked about on national media. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, you know, you think about it. how people are like, "Well, it's mine now." <laughs> <laughs> he, he was, he was, he didn't have that opinion. Good on him for being sort of the uh, man. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool that he uh, gave it up. Cause... And I and I love the comments from Ladarius Owens. Just Sounds about... like Chris Davis wouldn't have given it up. He said he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear him when he's like, yeah. I regret I didn't grab the ball. Maybe he would have been his, uh, his office. Oh, yeah, he would have kept it. Yeah, yeah, he definitely would have. But How I do love... you tell him he doesn't deserve it, right? Exactly, uh, exactly. Well, that and Ladarius <laughs> Owens just talking about how much he hates Alabama. Yeah. And then, uh, um, oh, who was it? Was it Jermaine Whitehead? He said his first thought was, because you see him on film oh, yeah, looking celebrating. Oh, yeah, his disappointment. Yeah, and he's running toward, like, the middle of the field as they're across the end zone near, like, the 30, 40-yard line. And he said he was doing that because he wanted to look in Nick Saban's eyes and see what his expression was. Well, and uh, I think, was it Ryan, Ryan Smith took his helmet off? 
Right. Um, yeah. As they were crossing and, the goal line, that could have been a penalty. That could be a penalty. And so, and Chris Davis noticed it and remembered it, but I had talked about that with Ryan separately. And he said, yeah, that was really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you know, that was a 23 year old, not knowing exactly what to do, but looking back on it, that could have been pretty bad because that's that's a penalty you know when you take a gate you know take your helmet yeah. off in our live play but he's like yeah probably wouldn't have done that if i had to do it over because i didn't really didn't know what i was doing but that's not i, I don't done i don't think those referees would have made it out of that stadium alive if they threw a could flag you imagine they throw a flag and reverse no, you can't do that and you can't do that to the kids on a big moment like that you know what i mean no so, i know I mean, but i mean they, yeah. they would have had to yeah, they would have they would never be refereeing again um would have been, been stuck their lives would be in danger but anyway it's a great piece uh go read it um it's the oral history of the kick six and the last game in which uh the iron bowl uh decided the sec west champion and here we are again four years later same situation a lot Mm -hmm. on the line uh crazy stuff okay so um stephen leith the president of auburn university finally announced his advisory committee for the athletics director search we kept we were kept being told it was gonna be a search committee but no they're calling it an advisory committee they've which al- makes it even less of a deal right um they've also hired a parker executive search firm which has handled a lot of stuff for auburn and sec programs to kind of help identify candidates um here's who here's who's on the uh, uh advisory committee it's a six-person co- committee um, three men, three women, which I think is significant. Uh, starting off here with uh, Gaines Lanier, who played football for Auburn, was a letterman for three years. He's going to uh, head it. Uh, Kim Evans, former women's golf coach here at Auburn, who retired just two years ago. Jason Duffner, of course, the Auburn alum and uh, PGA former PGA champion. Uh, Adrian A.J. Lee, a former gymnast at Auburn. Uh, Beverly Marshall, who's a professor of finance here at Auburn University, and, uh, of course, Quentin Riggins, former Auburn star and is also on the Board of Trustees. A um, couple of folks or a few folks on that uh, advisory committee on the Board of Trustees as well. Um, the significance of this advisory committee, I, you know, maybe they'll they'll interview a couple of folks after they've identified some candidates, but... I fully believe that this will be a decision that is made by Stephen Leith, and I believe Stephen Leith's already got names in mind, and uh, they're going to be moving pretty fast on this. I I think that you could see a hire in two weeks. I've long said SEC Championship weekend, but uh, I also thought the advisory committee or search committee, whatever you want to call it, would be announced last week, as I was told by someone, and that didn't happen. So um, I would say in the next two, three weeks, they'll probably hire someone. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd say, you know, David Housel donated a bunch of documents to the Auburn Library. And one of the things in there uh, is like notes he had taken at like a meeting. I'm not sure if it was like an advisory committee, but they were when they were looking for a replacement for Tommy Tuberville. And they gather a bunch of people to like kind of talk about what they were looking for. It just feels to me like that. And it's just like a generic list. Like we want somebody that has good morals or ethics. We want somebody that has this. Like that's I mean, are they just going to weigh in essentially and just say, like, here's criteria we hope to find? Because um, the way it's worded, I don't see them having any sort of some nick, nick, the advisory committee having significant impact on the direction of the search. It's going to be Stephen Lee's dis- decision, and he'll just get a rubber stamp of approval, you know, kind of thing on from the group, essentially. Yeah, definitely. And I would say the same uh, candidates that we've mentioned before are there. Uh, I know uh, the folks at AL.com added a name on that list, which is actually, I think, last week the name I told you about off the air and you mm. found. But uh, uh, the former Troy Athletics Director, I think John Hartwell's his name, he's now at Utah State. I don't know how realistic that option would be, but he's obviously very familiar with Auburn, the state of Alabama, and SEC. I think he was at Ole Miss for like eight or I nine years. Yeah, nine years or something like that. Um, yeah. As an executive yeah. uh, uh, associate athletics director, whatever you want to call it. Um, so he's very familiar with the SEC and knows how it's going. Auburn's got to get a good businessman or businesswoman in that position because, one, there's some crises they've got to handle right now, but, two, they've got to figure out a way to best handle their money, and they've got to figure out a way to update Jordan-Hare Stadium, in my opinion. They have got to update that thing in the next five, six years. Well, and that's clear that that's what they're going to do because they nixed the video board and clear that they want a, they want a coherent plan going forward, not just sort of like, hey – 
let's stick something here and here, and then you know we'll, we'll revisit. They want kind of a, I think, a way forward to modernizing everything because uh, it's getting pretty old in, in in terms of sort of amenities and things compared to these other stadiums. Like when you walk into Texas A&M's uh, Kyle Field, incredible. Uh, it's, it doesn't even feel like they're they're in the same ballpark. Um, stadium-wise, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, they. gosh, how much money they spend at Texas a and was like $300 million, $400 yeah. million? And maybe oh, you incredible. don't get something as significant, but you want a vision in place. You don't want to just slapdash it around. Yeah. yeah. Do it. And listen, Auburn's fallen behind quite a bit with their football stadium. I mean, the last time there was really uh, an update of any sort was late 80s. Um, yeah. Same with the athletics complex. Um, it's It's time to do something. Um, you've got to show off your program, and the best way to do that is by having great facilities. Now, they've got an indoor practice facility and all this other stuff, a great basketball arena, but football's the moneymaker, and if you want to make that thing even more powerful on a national level, Auburn's up there now. I mean, they've been a top-five team in, like at some point over the in, in three, four seasons. Four, four of the like five seasons – that Gus Malzahn's been here, they've been ranked in the top 10 at some point. So, and, the, and the, where the competition's happening now is that just the <laughs> the stadiums and luxury things that state, uh, campuses have, because, you know, with these top-tier schools, what separates them? And, like, a slide or mini golf course at Clemson gets one or two extra recruits, you know, that's all you need. And so... Right. Um, it, sounds, sort of it sounds silly, but it, that's what that's what works now. Yeah. Well, when you hear the kind of the phrase first world, it's like first first top team problem, basically, essentially. Uh, Well, and listen, you have to also remember these are kids. They're easily impressionable. Right. Yeah, Uh, no, that's true. If if they if they come on campus and they see Auburn's campus and go, man, this looks like something from the 80s. Well, yeah. When you walk into like a palace, I mean, you kind of notice the difference. Right. right? And the bathrooms are leaking and, you know, right. Gross. Uh, You know, it's like. Some of those things make a difference, and for families too, because your family's going to be wanting to go yeah. to games and uh, spend time there. So you'll never all those know. Matter, yeah. What could make the difference? Yeah, because for example, uh, you know, he's not playing right now, but Prince Michael Salmons, offensive lineman out of Ohio, you know, he wanted to go to uh, uh, Michigan State, mm-hmm. and you know why he didn't go? The, I did not, but I'm guessing you do. The dorm rooms were too small. <laughs> well, he's a big man, so I yeah. He said, I can't see myself laying in this bed. That was it. And that that was the decision. That was the only reason why he didn't go. That's amazing. So it just speaks to the idea that for each person is different and you want to try to have as many, you know, you want to have as many uh, upgrades or benefits as you can do uh, to your campus and facilities and things like that. Yeah. I, I mean, if I was on the advisory committee and if they actually are able to interview people, one of my questions would straight up be, what would you do to this stadium? What would you yeah. do with the athletics complex? And what how what would your plan be? And how fast could you do it? Yeah. And, and be fiscally responsible with it. Um, that would be one of my big questions. They've got to make football a priority, facilities wise. This idea that they got to build a sports medicine facility and all this other stuff. No, update the freaking stadium. Build a new athletics complex tear down the Coliseum finally, do something with that land, uh, maybe put the new athletics complex there. They've got they got to update. They've got to do this. They've got to do it. They've they've got to be responsible with the money, but they've also got I mean, they're they're at the cusp here. <clears throat> if if Auburn is able to beat Alabama, that would be enough push, I think, to start getting the money makers to start going, okay we're willing to pay right. for some stuff. So the, the, this new AD could strike while the iron's hot. Uh, well, no, no pun intended with the, with the iron bowl. Um, it's very possible they can do that, but we'll, we'll see. But uh, they've got to get a, they got to get a very business, business savvy AD in here and they've got to do quickly. And someone who doesn't have a lot of connections to Auburn, because I, I think they've got to come in and either clean house uh, with that department or change a lot of things, even with uh, job responsibilities and the way things are run, because there's a lot of things that need to be cleaned up. It's like going into an attic and everything's covered in cobwebs. Um, they, they've got to fix a lot of things. Uh, Wouldn't it be more like federal lawsuits covering the walls? Well, that too. <laughs> 
I would be less worried about that, to be honest, than, you know, just... Than spiders. <laughs> There's a lot of spiders walking around that athletics department. Um, uh, no offense. Uh, <laughs> to spiders. <laughs> to spiders, yeah. Um, okay, so basketball finished through the Charleston Classic. Not great, but not bad either, I guess. Yeah. Um, kind of what you would expect, I, I would be honest, without D'Angelo Purifoy and Austin Wiley. They beat Hofstra um, to finish third. Now they come back to Auburn uh, to play, what, Winthrop Friday? And mm -hmm. this could be an interesting week because keep hearing Bruce Pearl and that staff still kind of in some hot water uh, yeah. with what's going on with the internal investigation, not necessarily the FBI investigation. And uh, I, I just keep hearing – like the more and more things I hear, it's just it's like bad things could be on the horizon. I'm not hearing good things as far as the coaches and coaching staff. Now with players, there's all kinds of rumors with that, like especially about Austin Wiley about potentially being uh, cleared to play. But uh, the coaching, I just situation. had a hard time with that one, just because that would mean they found no evidence of wrongdoing. But the evidence, the federal indictment, should be evidence enough, right? You would think. Um, and so you'd want to petition the NCAA just to make sure there's no issue, you know, to leave it in their hands because then you wouldn't be – then you wouldn't get them reversed any – you know, you the wins reversed anyway. And here's the other thing that's interesting is a, lot, a, a couple of these other programs have been involved with this. They've they've turned things around pretty quickly as far as getting an answer whether these players can play. Uh, yeah. Auburn has not. So that, that leads more credence to the idea that they will not play this season. Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be an uphill battle. But I think just with the way the federal indictments were, or the complaint and all those things, and that's evidence on of itself, I think you'd want to just go the extra step of having the NCAA certify it, like not just your own program, just so to make sure there's no issues down the line. Yeah, definitely. That's what Alabama did, essentially. They right. Just said, we found wrongdoing, so but will you declare him back eligible? So um, you got to be careful because even if you didn't find something, the NCAA could say, look, hey, wait. Uh, there's, you know, this, this document says otherwise. So, um, but then the coaching stuff is all separate. So, and that's just a mess. Right. Okay. Let's go to listener questions here. Um, <clears throat> this is from Josh Ellis. If Gus Malzahn pulls off a win against Nick Saban this year, this week, excuse me, is he forgiven for his abysmal record against Auburn rivals in recent years? Uh, yeah, I, I get. I would think so. Beating Georgia think, and Alabama in the same year when they're both ranked number one at that time, in but a way, it, yeah, it resets the clock a little bit. But I mean, yeah. this, it, you don't get much, time, you don't get much honeymoon time here with the expectations. So um, it's good for now. But I mean, you go, you lose five games next year. I don't think people are, have. There's no long memories in college football anymore. No, there's not. Um, a lot of injury questions. We've already hit on that. Um, okay. Must have been a good, been yeah. a good one. <laughs> Someone asking who should Georgia be pulling for? I don't think our listeners care. Uh, more injury. Everybody wants to know about injuries. Um, we've already discussed that. Should. Yeah. Um, isn't uh, Gus on Tiger Talk tonight? Oh yes, that's right. I forgot about that. Thanks for so reminding maybe me. We get, maybe we get something tonight. Maybe, uh, pro maybe probably not. He'll, well, he'll be, just I mean, he'll at least address. The well, team. we'll know more Tuesday. Joe Williams is still on the team. The great uh, thing for Gus, though, is that you know, will we get another Malik Miller update? Is he a guy? <laughs> is he is he a running back? No, there's no, you know, he doesn't have to deal with practice because the show will happen. He'll be like, oh, practice day. So that's what he'll say. He'll say, I'll know Thursday or Friday. Yeah. Uh, Dana, a uh, good friend, former OA News sports editor. What are you most excited for, Brandon? The Iron Bowl or apple pie on Thanksgiving? I'll hang up and listen. Uh, can I eat the apple pie while the Iron Bowl is going on? That That would be my answer. Dana makes like the best apple pie ever, and it's been like two or three years since I've had it. And she's bringing it down from Nashville for the Marcelo household Thanksgiving. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and that's all the listener questions. Woo! 
Everybody wanted to know about uh, injuries, though. So, um, pop culture-wise, I uh, saw Justice League, and that's it. <laughs> it did. Uh, it bombed essentially. It bombed at the box other, office. Other way to look at it, um, which is crazy because ninety-six million dollars uh, sounds like a lot of money to me, but when a movie costs three hundred million. And you have to pay money on the back end on top of it. Uh, the cost, like the break-even cost, is like eight hundred or something like that. That's just yeah. ridiculous. Well, I just read that it actually made less than ninety-six million. It made nine. <laughs> it made ninety-four million. Well, whatever it is, I mean, whatever the final number ends up being, uh, the original hope, and which was a bad, which was bad to begin with, was one hundred to ten to one hundred twenty. So right. it just shows you how it didn't even meet like I lower. Mean, Batman movies. Batman v Superman made one hundred sixty six million its opening weekend, and uh, and then it dropped off considerably after that because everybody knew it was a horrible movie. And uh, WB, of course, is coming out going, well, you know, this is a movie with legs. We got Thanksgiving break coming out now. Nope, that that uh, your movie did terribly, and uh, the Thor was better. So, but the movie was okay, just from the standpoint that it was. I would compare it to a average Justice League animated movie. Well, have you been following some of the uh, like the details about um, like what was shot when and all yeah. this other stuff? Like, pretty fascinating, just how much they changed and oh yeah, uh, what the original vision was. And um, I think it would have done poorly no matter what. But, yep. Um, the fact that I guess they got a coherent movie out of it was pretty impressive, considering that uh, it sounds like they did not have a real good feel for what Zack Snyder was doing. And yeah, it, it at the very least, I would say this, it's a minor miracle that they were able to put together a two hour movie that actually made sense structure wise. Um, there's some things in there that are, I mean, like Steppenwolf, you, you never clearly get an idea of why he's there. Like right. what exactly the mother boxes do. Other than it terraforms <laughs> the planet into apocalypse, uh, but uh, haven't we seen that? Well, I mean, enough? it's true that they <laughs> like they're going after these things and they leave one on a car. Yes, like, just get stolen. That's yeah, well, I, I can forgive that's that a little bit because that's a good plot point. spoiler alert: they use the mother box to bring Superman back to life. And the mother box shoots up in the sky as Superman shoots up in the sky. And they're going, oh, crap, where'd Superman go? And that's crazy. And they find him standing at the monument. And they're trying to, like, see if he's okay and whatever. And um, he's confused and all that. And meanwhile, the mother box lands on top of a car. And, and as Superman is starts fighting the justice league because cyborg's self-defense mechanism starts going off without him being able to control it. And it shoots at Superman. He freaks out and starts fighting the justice league. So they're, they got their hands full. And, uh, while that's happening, Steppenwolf comes in and uses a boom tube to get the, uh, the, uh, uh mother box. So I can somewhat understand it cause it happens really quickly, but, um, but then, I mean the original, apparently the original idea for Snyder was, he never even got to shoot it um, to have Superman as like the villain for the second half of the movie, basically that they don't right away convince him to be good again. And that he's kind of the pawn for Steppenwolf, which makes more sense because Steppenwolf was right. um, such a bad villain, but it doesn't make sense considering you had Superman and Batman fighting the movie before. Well, that, and um, if they and did that, the it. movie would be three hours long. And I do. Well, yeah, that too. Ugh. But, uh, pretty bad and then the mustache stuff was apparently didn't disappoint um yeah i'll say this it wasn't as terrible as i thought it was going to be but you can notice it if you're staring at it looking for it there's one scene uh specifically where you're going he moved he like turns his head and is smiling and you go that doesn't look like a human smile right but there's other times like the very first scene they cover it up and actually do so kind of brilliantly they start the movie off it just starts with a cold open of superman saving something there's cops around and everything and this little kid runs up with the cell and you see it from the cell phone perspective and it literally on the screen it's just as small as a cell phone screen 
and it goes up to Superman, and they're like, "Wow, it's Superman!" All this, and they start asking him questions, and he's he's got other things to do, but he stands there and he smiles and he's answering their questions and being nice about it and all this stuff, and but he's got the mustache and you can tell and the cell phone, you know, they try to make it grainy or whatever, but you mm-hmm. can tell that they've removed the mustache. It's a good scene that they added to the beginning of the movie. Cause it reminds you of what Superman is, or at least he should have been um, in the, as uh, depicted in the previous movies. And then it starts from there and you kind of, you've got this feeling of loss in the world and all that. And I thought it was a good addition. It was definitely something Joss Whedon came up with. Um, and it ends with the kid asking, what do you love most about the world? And Superman smiles and kind of looks off and the video ends and he's obviously thinking about Lois or whatever. Um, and he kind of hints toward his dad and he has to stop himself from talking about his dad. It's good stuff, but the rest of the movies just, I mean, the characters were good. Even Aquaman was okay, even though it's against type a little bit, they didn't make him too rock star ish as I was afraid they were going to. They did a good job with him, and I'm sure it was a Joss Whedon thing where he's talking about like not wanting to die and all this stuff happening and everything, and then come to find out the reason why he's saying all that is because he's sitting on the lasso of truth on accident um, while they were talking. That was kind of cool, but uh, Ben Affleck seemed to be kind of asleep. Um, yeah, that was some of the descriptions of Ben Affleck uh, in the reviews were pretty terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Looked like he was like going through a colonoscopy through the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it's it, it. He wasn't great in the movie, though. I will say after that, but if there are odds of him. You know, like you, you could. He's bat, not coming back. Never doing a Batman movie. I he's would, done. Uh, I would take that. Take he's that. done. He's done. There's no way. Uh, but I will say that he right after like that, a man that does not give a f anymore. No. Out, like wants to find the emergency exit so bad. <laughs> like, it's like I got my money. I'm out. So sad, and it's like everything. Every time I see him in the previews, it's like that looks. He looks like he wants a drink, and he can't. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I think one of the best Batman scenes ever in any movie was actually in that movie at the at the start. Batman is uh, sitting on a rooftop waiting for this robber, and he, you know, catches the robber, and the robber's trying to shoot at him, and it, it's doing the Batman stuff on the rooftops. He's climbing up things and disappearing. It's really cool. I mean, it's Batman. And uh, all he's doing is he's trying to get the guy out in the open and capture him and lean him off a rooftop so he can attract a parademon because they're attracted to fear. Um, and then Batman, like, jumps on a parademon and all this stuff. It was pretty – it was well shot and everything, but uh, God, Ben Affleck's so freaking boring uh, as Batman. And there was one <laughs> – there was one scene that I thought I was not going to like, but then when it happened, I, I liked it. Superman's all freaked out, and Batman shows up near the end of the fight with the Justice League because he's, he's got a contingency plan in case Superman's bad. He shows up, and Superman sees him, and he's like, oh, I remember this guy now. And he goes up to him and throws him into a car and then picks him up and says... He's just looking at him, and you can see Superman's mind's like kind of cranking and remembering things. And he goes, "Do you bleed?" To Batman, and Batman, he's holding him by the neck. And Ben Affleck actually did a good job with this. He looked at him like, "He, this is it. He's gonna break my. I'm dead." And then he throws he him. Wishing, he was wishing. <laughs> yeah. he it's like, please just kill me. Please he kill me. So I have to be in this movie. Uh, <laughs> they throw against him, and then he has a funny line afterward. Like he's getting up or whatever later after the fight, and he goes, "Yep, I definitely think something's bleeding." Um, and then okay, and then I'll get off the train here in a minute. But the, one of the better scenes the in the movie, I know there were some nice moments. The, the, one of the better moments is Barry Allen as the Flash. Uh, Superman has like the entire Justice League like in his arms, like holding them off, mm-hmm. and so Barry Allen tries to sneak up behind. Superman at super speed and Barry Allen's like looking at him or whatever in slow-mo and Superman's eyes start moving toward him and his head starts moving toward him and Barry Allen's face starts to just drop like oh my god he can follow me and all this stuff it's it's really funny it was pretty good um I'll just say that they got somebody that wanted to put their own stamp on the characters and that's not what you need with these movies you need the 
purest version of the characters. Yeah. And then they could do their own style or make their own movie, which is what Marvel's kind of now having success with, with some of their kind of kookier stuff. But yeah. the characters need to be the characters. And I think that, that that's been the major problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, these are almost unrecognizable to comic books that I read as a kid growing up, even uh, the stuff that I read in the last 10 years, where it's just sort of... Yeah. Um, but... I'll say yeah. this: they, if they move forward with anything and they actually do what you say, which I think they obviously are trying to to do now. With I mean, the they got an makers. Aquaman movie made, so I mean that's going to come out. Uh, Wonder Woman's kind of further along than anything else, but I don't know what they're going to do. They just do solo movies for a while and then figure out regroup later. But they're kind of in a, it's a mess. I think it all depends on whether they do a Flash movie. If they do a Flash movie, that means they're going to move ahead. But uh, I just can't see it. I I, I don't either. Because um, some people liked him, but some people found him completely. Yeah, wrong. I mean, so, yeah, but he's obnoxious uh, for a reason. He's just in college, and at the end of the movie, he gets a low-level job in a crime lab. And uh, the uh, who played his dad? What's his uh, name? What's his name? <laughs> the uh, Mastercard uh, guy. <laughs> yeah, and he's in Big uh, Fish. He was in Watchmen. Watchmen. Uh, he was fantastic. Uh, in the movie, in the sh- uh, short scenes they gave him, Billy Kudrup. Yes, Billy Kudrup. Um, he was fantastic, and the end of the movie, the end scene with him and his with Barry Allen was great. Cyborg sucked. Uh, just was awful. Um, Aquaman was okay, but uh, and they have a whole movie though for him, so we'll see what they do with. Them. Yeah, but. The one thing that would give me hope about that solo movie is the director's really good, but even so, they got to have a nice arc for him where he changes by the end of the movie. Yeah. Because um, he's not the king of Atlantis yet, so maybe he... I, I compare it to the Thor arc, you know, in the first movie. He's just arrogant and all that, and then he kind of... I, I don't know. Who cares? I, I, I To be honest... A lot of money... A lot of money yeah. went into something that. To I be honest, I don't, I don't, I don't want to see this universe anymore. I want them to start over. Yeah, and that's kind of the problem they have. Nobody likes what they're doing. So. Yeah. Um. A lot of money though, so who knows yeah. how that ship turns? We'll see. Well, a lot of people there will get fired. I know that. Yeah, I would think the president is. Uh, uh, of Warner Brothers or yeah. uh, DC. Yeah. What's his name? Tukanashi or something like that. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. Days. Him. Yeah. I think his, his days, days are number. Yep. Yeah. But whatever. Also, it's so strange because Superman's suit is all of a sudden like bright. <laughs> just, just, yeah, they should have a post on it that says this was uh, a <laughs> studio. Number. There's like yellow in it. You go, what? The, <laughs> you're not supposed to well, do that. Just, in Zack Snyder. Yeah. Like Zack Snyder had a vision that doesn't want like no the muted colors were like the opposite of what you want to do with right. characters. So, like I remember they showed his shield. He's laying on the ground. I'm all like, that is not what we've seen in the last two movies. Right. Uh, Where did he get a costume when he was supposed for them? To, like they just had one ready with more yellow. Seems like well, they changed the color scheme and a lot of things. Like that fight with uh, Superman in the trailers, it's at night. In the movie, well, favorite, I mean, in the, the movie, posters, it's at day. I mean, you, you look at those posters with the colors that are expi- inspired by Alex Ross, and it's like those are great posters. Except the characters don't look anything like that. They in the don't movie. do that in the movie. Yeah, like you have to um, put like the shades fifty shades darker. Yeah, but they change a, a they changed a lot of stuff in the movie just as far as aesthetics because the fight with Superman was supposed to be at night and it was in, during the day. In the movie, um, but it just speaks to just fractured overall vision and nobody had like. Well, it head. speaks to Zack Snyder wanting everything to be so dank and dark and stupid looking. Um, even the final fight scene in Russia or wherever they're at, that's like brighter and kind of during the day. Whereas in the previews earlier, when Snyder was still involved, it was all at night and you could barely see anything. Um, but it still wasn't great. And the only good thing about that fight scene was the flash and Superman going to save civilians and they go, you go left, I'll go right. And flash saves a family in a truck and Superman He goes, yeah, you know, and he looks to his right and Superman's carrying an entire apartment building on his back, uh, flying off with it, which was pretty funny. They got a pretty good laugh, but anyway, um, I don't know why we're talking about this so long. It just, it was okay. My wife liked it, but she was 
okay, just meh. The only thing that got her was they kept mentioning Steve Trevor's name in it, and every time they said Steve Trevor, she got sad. Mm. Um, and uh, Batman had a pretty bad snapback at Wonder Woman in the movie going, oh, you mean like Steve Trevor? And Wonder Woman punches the crap out of him. It's pretty nice. <clears throat> and then uh, pre- <laughs> then uh, Ben Affleck said, please punch me again. Please, God, get me out of here. Punch me again. I want to go make Live By Night 2. And, oh, man. Isn't it amazing how he went from crap to making Argo and uh, The Town and Gone Baby Gone to now going back to crap? And now he's going to change up again, I would imagine. So. Well, I, th- I don't think we're going to see him for a couple of years again. Maybe. I think he's going to go try and regroup and figure out what he needs to do next and count his money. It honestly sounds like he did this movie, these movies only because of his kid. Yeah. A lot of actors do that, though. Yeah, because so. I've seen a lot of pictures crop up where he's got the kid on set with him and he's posing with the Flash and his dad a lot and all that. I think I think it's the only reason why he did it. But Maybe. Whatever. His kid steered him wrong. So yeah, blame his kids. Yeah, let's blame the let's blame the children. Uh anything else? No, my wife has to get to a doctor's appointment, so I have to uh, oh, that's right. skedaddle. Yep. Well, let me know if uh, the London rats are walking around the Auburn streets. <laughs> I've sent my kids out to uh, make the kids. Everybody's sick for our bowl weekend, so they're just sneezing on everything. Nice. Well, that's going to do it for this edition, episode, whatever you want to call it, of the Auburn Undercover Podcast presented by WeHaveDonuts.com, D-O-U-G-H, Nuts.com. Check out their website for delivery options in Birmingham, Montgomery, and Auburn. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you later this week. Go to AuburnUndercover.com for full coverage on the most important week of the year, Iron Bowl Week. 